And that was DNA from Reckless Mercy's CD, Turning Over Tables. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding on WGNW 95.7 FM, The Choice, in Asheville, 957thechoice.com on the web. I'm John Green, your host of Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm the senior pastor of Christ Anglican Church in Asheville. We meet at 81 Patton Avenue in downtown Asheville on Sundays at 4 o'clock. That's the home of Creatures Cafe. We meet at Creatures at 4 o'clock on Sunday, and we invite anybody out there to join us for that worship. You're welcome to come and visit with us and, and worship with us at Christ Anglican. If you'd like to learn more about the church, go to wwwchrist anglican.com there you'll also find some documents and uh, soon some podcasts for from this show excerpts from the show that'll be podcast online Uh, you can also find out more about the church more about anglicanism more about worship on that page Um, to find out more about the show and to follow the show online go to www.facebook.com slash faith and understanding this show is called faith Seeking understanding. We're talking tonight about some cultural issues. We're talking about issues that have been in the news in the last week or so, and we're trying to come up with how do we deal with that on a biblical basis? How do we speak into those situations uh, in in the world uh, when the world asks us for our opinion? And that's been, in my my mind, the main issue lately is we were asked to give an opinion. The church has been asked to give opinions about things, but it's more than that. It's not that, that our opinion was sought, it was that our approval was sought. And the world finds it really strange when we disagree with them, when we say, no, actually, we cannot approve that. We don't feel that we have the freedom to do that. We don't have the freedom biblically to do that. And so we're talking about what does that mean and how do we think through these issues on a biblical basis. And I'm talking tonight specifically about why it is that God would say no to certain kinds of things, and, and, and not just the issue of homosexuality, but issues in our own lives. And we're talking specifically right now about desire. And where does that play itself out in Scripture? And, and why do things go wrong when we begin to follow our desires and, and enshrine our desires, frankly, and decide that the most important thing we can do is gratify those desires? It's not, is it wrong to have the desire? And it's hard to argue that it could be wrong to have the desire because, well, he's the one who created us. And so if he created us and I have the desire, well, isn't the problem really him? But... What we see in Genesis is, no, it's actually not his problem. Um, We were made for close, intimate relationship with him. We were made to walk with him, and he gives commandments, even though those don't satisfy the desires that are in our lives. But what he wanted was not simply to create people who would be, their lives would be absolutely determined every instant of those lives that we would only do those things that were pleasing to them. He gave us more than that. He gave us um, the ability to choose not to. And so what he's done is, to, is that we are created, and it's not an imperfect creation. It was perfect for the very purpose which we were created. And that is to have close reliance and dependence on him in relationship. And so if there is a desire in my life that's frustrated by God's will, then that treats me with great dignity and respect to say that 
you can rule over it. You can master that desire. You can rise above the level of desire and live at a higher level than that. That's sometimes a very, very difficult thing because not all desires that we have are wrong and weren't meant to be fulfilled. An unmarried person, for instance, has a desire for companionship and has a desire for for many different things that is absolutely meant to be fulfilled, but only within the bounds of marriage. And so those desires are frustrated outside of that. And if God doesn't bring the person into your life that, that he wants for your life to fulfill that desire, then it's a very difficult thing. And I have friends who are going through that and who deal with the loneliness and the, the separation of, of being a single person. And that's a difficult place to be because it's not that the desire's wrong. It's God hasn't provided the means of fulfilling and gratifying that desire. That's the problem, and it creates great frustration. But what it should do in our lives, and I am not judging people on this. What I'm saying is it's difficult. But what it should do is drive us closer to him and say that a desire itself is not wrong, but you haven't provided the means of fulfillment of that desire, and so there must be something higher. There must be something better. Give me more of yourself if I can't have the fulfillment of that desire. And so we tend too often to satisfy the longing for him with the fulfillment of an earthly desire. And we tend then not to get God's best. We tend to have separated ourselves from things like joy, for instance, because we we find um, we're filling that place in our hearts with some pleasure rather than him. And so that becomes a source of an issue. And so what we did was we looked at Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. And what I want to do in this next little couple of minutes is look at Luke 4. Because remember, Jesus has just been baptized by John and has the Spirit has driven him into the wilderness. And so he's in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil and fasting. And so he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. He had a desire, right? And, and is it an unnatural desire? Is it a wrongly ordered desire to be hungry after you haven't eaten for 40 days? No, it's absolutely not. It's a desire that needs to be satisfied for health reasons. If nothing else, it needs to be satisfied. And the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus had a desire that's normal and natural. And that is, I haven't eaten for 40 days. I need some food. And Satan comes and and provides him a way for satisfying that desire. And that is, turn um, stones into bread. And Jesus' response is to say, man doesn't live by bread alone. I have a desire. There's nothing wrong with a desire. But to turn stones into bread, I'm going to need somebody's word on that rather than you, Satan. I'm going to need to hear the Father say that. And did you hear the beginning of the question anyway? If you are the Son of God. So it's not just the satisfaction of desire that's there. It's also prove yourself to me. If you're the son of God, you have a desire that is perfectly normal and natural. You, if you're the son of God, have the means by which you can fulfill that desire, gratify the desire, turn those stones into bread. Do a little magic, Jesus. Satisfy your desire. 
that goes back to Genesis 3. That temptation does because it deals with desire. And it deals with the desire that can be satisfied. So why shouldn't it be? It's perfectly normal. And you can do something about it, so fix it. And Jesus says, no. Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and then showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I'll give all this authority in their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I'll give it to whom I will. If, then, you'll worship me, it'll all be yours. How big is your desire to have a kingdom, Jesus? Do you want it? You can have it. If you came for the world that you created, the kingdoms have been given to me, I'll give them to you. Jesus says, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I desire a kingdom, but not this. Not this kingdom, and not this way. Because he did desire a kingdom. He desired his father's kingdom. Then he took him, he Satan, took him to Jerusalem, set him out on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, um, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it said, you shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. That one, maybe it's the desire to see God fulfill his promises, to see him do what he, want, what he said he would do. And Jesus said, no, you don't set out to do that. That's not the goal. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And what I want you to see is, is that again and again and again, those same temptations are offered to Jesus. When he feeds everybody in John 6, they want to make him king. But they want to make him king on their terms. We'd like you to feed us every day. This is the way we want things. And if you don't do it, all 5,000 of us are going to leave you. And Jesus said, no. I want a kingdom, but not that way. I'm king, not you. You don't get to have your desires fulfilled in order for me to be king. And so he, he deals with these issues again and again. And he has to deal with those issues when, when he's on the cross. If you're the son of God, come down. You saved others, save yourself. He has the power to do all these things. And surely with the pain, he had maybe even the desire to come down. But the reality is the father didn't say come down. And so he didn't. So just because the the opportunity and the, the possibility of the fulfillment of a desire is there doesn't mean that it needs to be. And that is what we learn from Jesus dealing with the temptations. All those things are natural, normal desires. And in fact, Satan had to know that Jesus had a kingdom waiting for him. And yet, he offered him kingdom in a shortcut way. And Jesus says no. And so, desire comes in all kinds of forms. And it's the same kind. And that desire, when it's frustrated or when it's fulfilled in a wrong way, becomes a problem. And we have to say no to things in our lives all the time. And so we've got to come to grips with that desire in our own lives. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus is trying to say with those things, is that, that if you don't conquer desire, then ultimately desire will conquer you. So when he talks about murder and when he talks about adultery, if you allow the hatred to run riot in your life against your brother, if you begin to speak against your brother, if you begin to call him names and call him fool, then what you've said is you're no longer somebody created in the image of God. You've reduced him to something other than who he is, a sinner just like you. And ultimately, if you continue down that path, you'll literally commit murder just like Cain. And if 
you don't deal with the problem in your eyes, if you don't deal with the lust in your heart, ultimately, if you allow that to continue, you will fulfill that desire. And so we have got to deal with the issue of desire in our hearts and in our lives. And unfortunately, what we've done in the last, I don't know, maybe 50, 60, 75 years, is we have enshrined the fulfillment of desires of all sorts in our lives. And we have enshrined those fulfillment of those desires as something that, that why shouldn't we do these things? And so what we created over the last 50, 60 years is a culture of divorce where we see evangelicals, Christians, others who are um, getting divorced at the same rate as those in the world. And what we've done is we have said, I want, you know, Susie Smith, whoever, I want her. So, you know, away with the wife. And now I need a new wife. Um, I, I, I want more happiness in my life. My wife isn't providing me with happiness. She's not meeting my needs. We no longer have as great a time together as we did when we first started dating and when we first got married. And so I'm going to put my wife away and I'm going to go somewhere else. Well, I believe that we, the church, have created a culture whereby kids who paid the price for us failing to hold the line on marriage has now created a culture where those kids look at us and when we have something to say about anything else that has to do with morals and ethics, they're looking at us and they're saying, you know what? You weren't there when I needed you. You abandoned me. You encouraged or you allowed at least my parents to break up our family and for my life to be destroyed, I don't really care what your opinion is about these other things now because we've compromised our moral authority because we failed to uphold biblical values regarding marriage. And so now when we speak about other forms of marriage, non-traditional forms of marriage, the world looks at us and says, really, really? You are the final arbiters of marriage. You're the ones who get to speak and say that we shouldn't do these things. Wow. You should have said something a long time ago. If you wanted to have a moral voice and moral strength on the issue of marriage, you should have said something a long time ago. You should have said something when divorce was wreaking havoc in people's lives. I know there are divorced people out there probably listening to the show tonight. And and the reality is, is that, that you know this you know that it causes pain in families. It causes problems in families. It causes children to rebel. It causes children enormous pain, suffering, and confusion when they see this. So we've got to take responsibility. We can't sit and just blame the world. We've got to take responsibility for a lot of this. We've got to take responsibility for the fact that we have allowed the culture to dictate morals and ethics to the church. And we have embraced those. We have embraced the fulfillment of desires and consumerism and so many other things. And until we, the church, we as Christians, begin to deal with the problem of desires in our lives, and we begin to identify that as a problem, and we begin to lean on him and rely on him, begin to ask him, is this a desire you want me to fulfill? Then we're not going to be able to reclaim the moral ground that we've lost. What I want to do in the last, like, 40 minutes of the show tonight is to look at something 
interesting, I think, the Declaration of Independence, actually, and then look at an address that Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian dissident, gave in Harvard in 1978, the same year that I graduated from high school. He spoke to Class Day at Harvard, and I want to look at some of the things that he said. If you'd like to look at that along with me, go to our website, the church's website, at wwwchrist Anglican.com, go to podcasts, and then in the drop-down menu, you'll see August 2nd, 2012. Go there, click on that, and you'll find a link to Solzhenitsyn's uh, class day address. And so if you want to look at that with me, we're going to play a song from Reckless Murphy's, Reckless Murphy, Reckless Mercy's Turn It Over Table CD, and then we'll be back and we're going to look at the Declaration of Independence and Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, address to Harvard.
Cause it wants to keep you from there 